0: What's up, everybody, and welcome back to the Central Virginia Sport Performance Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Jay DeMeo. Today, I am super excited. It's kind of like returning to the neighborhood here in these past few episodes here of the podcast. We get to sit down with my former neighbor to the west, Dr. Aaron Heishman, who's now with this hockey team you might have heard of, the Las Vegas Golden Knights. They've been doing okay out there of late. Um, and, you know, my my memories go back of Dr. Heishman when he was just Aaron as a GA at the University of Virginia. And to be able to watch him progress and grow as a professional, you know, from the outside in is, has been pretty fantastic. You know, Dr. Heishman, I'm stoked to have you here. Welcome to the show.
1: Thanks so much for having me, Jay. It's great to hop on. Chat with you, a bit, catch up. been a while.
0: Yeah, buddy, it's it it sure has, and unfortunately, you know, just it just the way the world of sport works. But you know, let's let everybody know, you know, who is Aaron and how'd you get out to Vegas, brother? Yeah, for
1: sure. I'll start where you left off. I uh, I um, had the opportunity to work with Mike Curtis at University of Virginia um, as a graduate assistant. Um, before that, I was at Virginia Tech and I, I got exposed to strength and conditioning with, uh, with David Jackson uh, with Virginia Tech basketball. But uh, when I was at Virginia, that's when things kind of revolutionized for me working with MC. And I recognized that we could use science and data to drive decision makings and uh, support the training process. And... That led me to, after my time there, I uh, went to the University of Oklahoma and worked with Bryce Dobb. uh, While I was getting my PhD, It was a full-time intern uh, with with men's and women's basketball. I got to help start some of the research and sports science initiatives there, uh, specifically looking at um, athlete monitoring strategies, jump performance. Uh, And and during my fourth year, I uh, accepted a a full-time position with the university and uh, working with women's basketball, training women's basketball, uh, supporting sports science for both programs and um, stayed there for two seasons. And then a uh, job came open with the, with the golden Knights and uh, pursued the opportunity and, and wound up here. And um, it's, it was nice because I wanted to look for something else. I'd been in basketball for quite some time. So I wanted to do something to expand my range. Uh, and a lot of people, I think in our field get caught up in like, I'm a basketball guy or I'm, I'm this sport specific. Uh, this is my area of expertise where I think in contrast uh, you can, bring a lot of good information from your the previous experiences, and then also open your mind uh, to to ways that you could, uh, or things you could bring back to your sport, um, like basketball to, to improve uh, performance and training and monitoring. Uh, so yeah, really interesting. My, my role here too, uh, with the Golden Knights, is uh, I'm, I'm head of sports science and, and reconditioning. So for the sports science piece, I lead uh, most of our sports science initiatives uh, of internal research projects, um, Obviously the athlete monitoring strategies that uh, most of the tech that we use, I'll um, lead that, facilitate that, uh, and then from the reconditioning standpoint, any of our long-term rehabs guys that are gonna be out more than uh, two to three weeks uh, in because of an injury, I'll take that training. Uh, so our head strength coach Doug Davis and uh, uh, will, stick with the main group and, and train those guys, whereas I'll uh, take the return to play guys. And then through that uh, return to play piece and, and the reconditioning, uh, I'll get the guys immediately after injury, right? So it's like day one, uh, I'll I'll get those guys that and we'll start training to get them back. And then I'll guide the testing for those return to plays and then communicate that data to sports medicine and our uh, medical doctors to say this is where he's at in the stage of the of the return to play. And here's our quantitative parameters of where he's at and uh shall we progress to the next phase Uh, so it's a a good hybrid role where i still get to coach uh but i'm still heavily involved in uh, research and um, a lot of internal research in sports science which i really value
0: and you won the stanley cup
1: (laughs) and we won the stanley cup for sure
0: (laughs) yeah i mean like a super rad role like a perfect fit for you and you get to pick up the coolest trophy in the world. Things it's it's a good time to be Aaron Heisman.
1: <laughs> for sure. Completely just uh, honored and humbled to be a part of the process and uh, just get to witness it. Um it's it was a super special time, the long season and a grind, and it's really cool to um, see it for the players. And a lot of this is their childhood dream, and um, getting to get to witness that and be a part of the process is pretty cool.
0: Yeah, and I think that really, man, like your whole process getting there has been pretty rad with the the different kind of angles that you've you've come through because you know like morgan was on that staff too right with mc yeah for sure that was morgan rob and you yeah
1: yep uh, morgan was uh, just starting as i was leaving she kind of took my role after i left then we also had uh jeremy anderson there right when i started yeah Yeah. uh, yeah so you know what I think of Rob un- unbelievable practitioner, great guy. Uh, and then MCs just has a crazy coaching tree and that, that I'm not concluding myself in that. I just think he's just helped mentor and uh, provide opportunity for a lot of people. And then he sets an expectation, um, of doing quality work and high expectations. And that was really stimulating for for me with my time with him. If he gave me a lot of aut- autonomy, um, it was expected to, to learn and grow and, um, ask good questions and that, that was the biggest piece for me is each day he would give time and I would ask questions and it was expected that I ask questions uh, so you think differently when you're when you're a- expected to ask questions a lot of times I think internships or um, graduate ex- assistant experiences are more of the the uh, labor and you're just there to learn and listen rather than um, ask questions that are kind of stimulating to the group
0: you think so, differently when you need to ask questions. That's fantastic. And that's kind of your role right now.
1: For sure. I, I, um, I would say to that, to that extent, um, a lot of people, and there's debates right now, like what is sports science and what is your role like? And a lot of people think about sports science as athlete monitoring strategies. And that's what I did. My my entire dissertation, PhD, a lot of my research has been in these areas. Of, Neuromuscular performance, athlete readiness. That is such a small piece of what we do here, right? It fits into the grander scheme. It's important. It's important for uh, profiling athletes, important for the return to play process. Um, it's, it's important to help guide uh, training load patterns that we'll see in stress, re- stress rhythms uh, throughout the season but it's a small piece. The bigger piece of sports science here is asking the questions that we need that would give our guys an advantage. And that's on a complete spectrum from all the way of uh, return to play, testing and evaluation. What's the best methodology for uh, assessment all the way up to uh, game specific activity of working with our um, data analytics side and uh, supporting that process of in-game uh, performance. And that's, that's where we're trying to take sports science here is getting away from the, the traditional focus of, athlete monitoring strategies, physical performance preparation, but including a lot of these other factors that get us closer to actual on-ice performance and how can we identify those uh, key characteristics and and determinants of success at an earlier age.
0: Oh, I, I love that because I think that understanding those models is what kind of like if we go all the way back, to like what roman used to talk about with omega wave how he used to model things out as predictability based on omega tree readings and things of that nature um i think that as long as we've been sitting here trying to collect data that's kind of what we've been doing but that brings me back full circle right to what we spoke about earlier and you work a lot of people would think that the hockey player would be more of a homogeneous type of a of an organism right that they all do things the same and they all move the same because of the unique modality that they have to move through but you've noticed that to be quite different
1: for sure i think uh that's one of the things that was quite surprising to me is they're all high level athletes right but the things that make them high level uh kind of is different uh, on, on both ends of the spectrum, you have those guys that are uh, create force through uh, neural output, and they're they're twitchy athletes, if you will. Then you have the other version of uh There are more higher skilled athletes that are get their output through more muscular force. They have greater endurance capacities, uh, and that's what makes them good because they can skate for days. And um, the skating piece is such a huge aspect. You can have great force output, but you can be a terrible skater. You can have great uh, force output from off ice to great linear acceleration on ice output so you're you have good starting speed but your uh your skating mechanics aren't that great so then when you get put in live drills you have uh less quality of a performance right you're you're not as good and that's a hatings a skill and something they, they also have to train so I think that uh, uh creates this um spectrum of of different style of athletes that are still find success at this level and it's, it's been really interesting. Um, I think we see that in, in basketball, some with uh, with highly skilled players versus skilled um, players that are still have that are more explosive, have high output. Uh, but um, I, I think it's a the the training histories are, are higher here uh, in working with these athletes, especially compared to the previous experiences with, with more college athletes. Uh, and you can just really see um, the qualities delineate. And what what makes guys successful is different, but they still find success. And they're, they're an elite athlete in their, in their own respect. But that's what we need to profile and evaluate so we know what to give them to optimize performance, right? So if we know this is how a guy finds success, we probably want to make sure that quality is prepared to, pre- to offer him uh, a success uh, when he gets on the ice. And then we'll slowly try to improve those other qualities that uh, maybe is, is limiting factors.
0: So then how often are you I, like um, evaluating those qualities and then how do those i don't know if this is the right word or not but this is just layman graybeard thinking like how do those healthy evaluations then impact and drive thoughts and decisions moving forward if something bad were to happen to one of the guys
1: that's a a great question so uh the majority of, of metrics that we want to gather, we want to have baseline data so we can use that for return to play information. So sometimes we'll do some assessments that we know that we may only use this uh, if if a player gets injured. For example, that like we'll do the ash test, we'll do a, a modified version of the uh, of the ash test for their shoulder health. And uh, that'll be super helpful in a return to play process. But we may not use that information regularly uh, if, if a guy doesn't have an upper, upper extremity injury or a shoulder injury. So uh, we'll try to do different segments uh, throughout the season of, of testing uh, at camp is the main one. So you can get good based on line data. If you have uh, um, you'll get serial data through having that player in, in your system for a while. And then we can also understand and interpret that, that, athlete's information based off of his peers, and then also our historic database of of NHL players and uh, prospects and whatnot. So we can start to contextualize uh, how that athlete compares to others. I think it's a big piece of the sports science perspective we have here is a lot of times we have to put this data that we're getting, whether it's flow data, whether it's performance data, but contextualize that for the athlete and uh, in, in, in how we interpret that information.
0: But then that's the fun part, right?
1: For sure. Yeah, for sure. So uh, I also like to think of this as uh, there's a lot of people right now collecting data. And data is simply just getting the the attributes or characteristics of an object or an event. And then the real magic is that through that interpretation process, and you take that data, interpret it, and that's how you get information. And that the information is how you make your decisions. Uh, a lot of people are just collecting the data, and they don't have a great skill set at the interpretation, which is the interpretation process. It's a it's a soft skill that you uh, two people could have the same data set and interpret outcomes differently. Uh, so then, but that interpretation is key on how you what information you gather and how that information is then generated into the knowledge that you have within your system. But I think the the contextualization of of uh, all of your data is super important in this environment because I'm sure there's other teams uh, with doing similar collection as us, but they may interpret their data differently and have different information streaming from that information, from that data but it's still valuable to them. So um, I think each environment's context specific and that interpretation is really the valuable piece when you start to generate information rather than more so we're just saying this data is valuable where in actuality, the data, unless you can do something with it, it's not that
0: valuable. Yeah, and even more so, it it may be detrimental, right? Because if all you're doing is pulling and pulling and pulling and these guys or the young ladies that you get to work with are like, stop wasting my time. Like, what are you doing? Like, how many times are you going to, you know, like poke the bear before you expect to get bit?
1: Man, that's huge. Uh, and, and that's a big piece here. So with the uh, with the NHL and the players, the uh, collective bargaining agreement, they don't have to do any of our testing or monitoring like throughout the season. They don't have to wear the units uh, for practice or because we use catapult system during practice uh, to monitor load. We, they don't have to do any of this. And you have to build good relationships and rapport with the athletes. So they trust you. What are you going to do with that information? Why is it important? And that will help get more information. They will say, yes, I'll do your, I'll do your counter movement jump today. Right? Like uh, you have to build a rapport with them to get that information. So then you can make these decisions. Whereas I think uh, in college, there's, it's much more systematic of like, they, people won't opt out of things uh, unless Unless you're really annoying about it, right? Usually, players are trying to get to the next level. So if they're saying, "I'll do this jump," to so you can evaluate me for the day, that's great because I want to do everything I can to to get to the next level. So um, I think the data collection process is a bit different here, and it can be challenging, but it it stimulates from building rapport and trust with the athletes. And it was actually Rob um, that that used this word, so I'm going to steal this. But um, at this level. It's much more of a co-worker relationship with the athletes rather uh, at the university level a lot of times um, you're more of an authoritative figure similar to a coach here it's very much like you're a coworker, worker uh, supporting their process and you have to build that rapport of what value you can bring and then uh, that connection so they'll they'll want to participate and, and let you support
0: their process yeah it's a whole different situation when you're working with someone that they could interpret what you're doing as it's messing with their paycheck
1: couldn't agree more. Yeah, that's a that's a constant challenge. So uh, making sure that we the data security and who gets access to the information is critical uh, and then also building the report like we're really collecting this data to help an athlete not uh, not hurt them uh, in any way. So it become detrimental um, to their paycheck to their to their next contract. It's, it's uh, something we definitely value and consider.
0: So then I guess looking at that and talking about this entire process as a whole, when you're looking at the return to sport, because, you know, like we were talking about before, I think a lot of people talk about how they do things that are metrically driven, but all too often are still running off intuition. And I'm not saying that's a bad thing. I think that there's something to a coach's eye. There's a reason why you know, we wanted Dan Paff to come to the seminar, right? Like he sees things different than everyone else. Now there's a reason why I want to talk to Hank because he sees things different than everyone else. But when you have the opportunity for it to be more of a data-driven decision, I think that we as a vocation, and that's all across in the you know, hashtag or air quotes, whatever people say now. Can you say hashtag now that it's not Twitter? Is it still a hashtag? I don't I know. Think,
1: I think I think so, but I'm not sure on that. Yeah,
0: it's I'm too old to I'm too old to care or understand. But uh, I'm
1: on that train with you.
0: Yeah, I got but, uh, other
1: bigger problems to worry about,
0: <laughs> no doubt. But like when we look at these things, right? Like how much does that metric drive the decision, though? You know, like when you sit down. All right, so let's just say I'm on the Golden Knights. Couldn't happen, but let's just pretend that I, you know, a guy who hasn't put skates on in 20 years can still play enough to to play in the in the show. And something bad happens physically to me. So it's just a Tuesday and my body falls apart per usual. What then, how does that conversation work with the medical team the coaching staff and the performance staff where there's metrics where like, we're close, but we're not there yet. How much of that intuition in that coaching, like are you turning the hat back and forth in that conversation at times where you're like, well, the numbers, but he's moving well. So I think you know what I mean by that?
1: Completely. I think uh, it, especially with like my background, people are like, Oh, you're so data driven and use this data to make decisions we turn that use this information from the data to make decisions there's still a huge uh, aspect of the the art of coaching if you don't have that you won't find success because uh, you have to interpret that information to say like oh this guy uh, does look like he can progress so uh, one of the big things we always say is that like we, we always have the player show me like we say if you don't tell me you're ready like show us you're ready and that comes back to our quantitative uh, assessment and we outline the plan with the player in the beginning to say, these are the kind of the checkpoints along the way uh, that we're going to want to guide you through uh, to, to make this return to play. Uh, it's a constant conversation between myself and sports medicine. We have a, we have an unbelievable sports medicine staff here. Um, shout out to those guys, Kyle Moore, Mike Meir. Now we have Steve McCauley leading us. Before that was Jay uh, uh, leading us, uh, leading our department. But it's constant uh, communication and collaboration. Where I'll meet with them every morning to discuss the plan uh, for for the return to play, guys. Right? It's like we're very integrated. And as soon as an athlete's injured, we want to get them training and doing something uh, to to speed up their their return to play, their their return to sport. So uh, I think early initialization of activity, early integration. A lot of people ask uh, at what point as the more the snc side of the return to play process at what point uh following the injury will i be included in the process of the return to play it's like uh the first day after right because i work with sportsmen we don't delineate it of like this is your time this is my time a lot of times it's mixed time of uh they'll do more of the hands-on manual therapy and then I'll implement the, the early stage rehab exercises. For example, maybe we're doing isometrics. I'll uh, implement those uh, for the athlete. So it, it's very integrated in that way. And then along the process, there has to be good communication and transparency with all stakeholders to make sure that the timeline hasn't shifted. Or if it has shifted, everyone knows why it's shifted, right? And then the, the athlete has to be included in that, uh, especially at this, this level, Uh it's their body they should know and you got to keep them informed of uh, where they're at in the phase of what we're thinking from a, from a progression standpoint. And then also ask the athlete how are you feeling about progression because there's a there's clearly a, a psychosocial parameter that it's challenging to measure about an athlete being ready to hit the next phase. you think about it more of a de- devastating uh, or large injury, say there was a um, you know a, a major surgery like an ACL tear as you go through those phases like you need to interpret their, uh psychosocial preparedness to go to the next stage as well and maybe that's more of a qualitative conversation with the athlete of, of how they're feeling um, maybe in the late stages they're they're still um th- their numbers look well they look good but they're they're still apprehensive in certain movement tasks and that will be the art of it rather than and then the communication with the athlete i'll still put that more on the art side of uh seeing if he's really ready to go to that next stage and maybe go to more contact drills just for a, a, a raw example
0: think that's a sensational example and it actually leads me right to another question with that though bud and that is you know you said and i think that this is a great line to use especially in this return to sport aspect don't tell us you're ready show us you're ready but then again going back to if this is an individual who is in a contract year or whatever it may be an older guy or a younger guy fighting to stay on the squad. How much of that then is the athlete? Well, I guess this is two part a, how much does that help them buy into the process and to understand that they have to do these things and that you're quote unquote, protecting them from making it worse or ending their career because they keep doing things that they're not ready for or is it something that then they say no i'm ready to go and they kind of pull the whole like mighty ducks thing right they're like coach it's gone and they just like turn the stick over and back (laughs) and they can bend their wrist you know like where does that line sort of go from like an actual like solid line to kind of translucent
1: yeah, I think that's a a really good point, point. and uh, again, it's all context specific, right? So all those factors that you just talked about are things that we we have to take into consideration. Uh, the other big one that that we didn't mention yet is is it is it Game Four the Stanley Cup Finals or is it uh, October or November of the se- early early stages of the season? Uh, that's going to interpret or that's going to affect how we interpret and uh, what we push for uh, for that athlete's process. I think the other thing is, <clears throat> with all of our quantitative parameters, we're really trying to evaluate risk and and how certain are we that the guy can achieve certain tasks, which the assumption is if you can achieve this task, then you're ready to move to the next stage, right? It's never foolproof at any of the stages, right? So I think contextualizing that information with all the factors, even training history, the guy's resilience, uh, uh, their preparedness, their... their other life issues going into that, you have to take that into consideration. Uh the time of year is huge. And even the, the density of the game schedule can can be a factor that should be considered in in the return to play process. Like if you're going to return them back, the density of the schedule around that is, is also a, a a factor that should be considered. Um yeah, so it uh lost my train of thought there, but yeah, those are those are key. Uh, pieces, and then at the end of the day, too, we're trying to say we want to make sure that we return the guy with the uh, most potential to be successful. So, using all the quantitative information we can, but then there's still this art and filling in the gaps with uh, with what we uh, know as or, esper- or think we know as practitioners, our our bias and perspectives uh, to to know if he's ready to return.
0: I love that. I mean, it, again, going back to what you said, you know. It, basically it's it's numbers with art, not over art you know? completely. yeah,
1: completely. And I think you can go you can get yourself lost and down a bad bad path if you only focus on the data uh, and and what your the quantitative parameters are showing you because uh, sometimes these guys are really good and they want to play. that's the other thing I, I wanted to mention with that last statement. My experience here for the last two years has been when a guy's out, he wants to be out there with his teammates and playing. So he's going to be on the gas and pushing to get back. Right. Which is an easier problem to have than trying to, is is trying to hold someone back and uh, I say, hold the reins back. Right. Um, Let them work hard, but safely and directed uh, rather than trying to to push someone forward and encourage them to work harder and do more. So um, we have unbelievable uh, guys from that perspective that all that I've worked with have, have been eager to return. I know in some places, some sports that's not the case. People will take that time uh, for themselves, if you will. So that's a huge factor uh, in the in the return to play process.
0: So being able to work with such a great staff, you know, there's obviously limitations for people on the outside, right? You know, like we you brought up earlier that we we talked about a lot of people like to say they're collaborative but are they a lot of people like to say they're a team but are they when you're giving advice to people listening now about you know the the department that you guys have and how you communicate things and how you look at the metrics to help with the art to help return to sport with these these guys what are some areas that you would think people need to be weary of where are some issues that people may see that arise that they need to be careful because treading in that water might be a little bit murkier than they think.
1: I think just uh, the the number one thing is high level of communication. There's so many stakeholders and you need to have communication where everyone's in the conversation and open. So people one can express themselves, people can ask questions uh, and hopefully you've created an environment where the expectation is you can ask challenging questions and, uh, about the process and what's best. Um, I think that that's essential, but you need to have people feel safe so that they can do that to ask those questions. So uh, I think having an environment where you're, the, the communication is full and transparent. So for example, maybe it's like just communicating with the athlete with sports medicine and performance all together. So everyone hears the same message, and that way you don't get fragmented in the, the, the telephone conversation. of um, the, the message gets changed as it, as it flows through people. Um, I think that's a, a really big one, um, and then having just departments aligned and, and creating that collaboration, sometimes that can be challenging uh, for, for people, but I think uh, one of the, the recommendations I would give is, is uh, encourage them to be a part of what you do, and open your door to them rather than ask questions about what they're doing. Have them ask questions about you have a level of humility and, and uh, uh, have yourself challenged and your perspective challenged by, by saying, here's what I think Challenge that idea. uh, And kind of make yourself be vulnerable and out there can help those initial phases of that um, relationship and starting that communication.
0: Yeah. That's not always the easiest thing to do.
1: One of the hardest, but it's like the most important. And that's the kind of, just the position that usually happens is like the most important things are the probably the hardest, but it is, and it, we're just fortunate here. I think uh, um, the the people assembled here in this in this department is uh, that was a key piece in in Jay's selection process when he was building a staff, or how do people function together, uh, and what's their their mindset? And I think that uh, uh, precedes a lot of the technical skill. Um, if you don't mind, let me say this one quick thing. So uh, another revolution that I've had in this, this time here. it worked with Jay Millette. And uh, my background is as a technician, right? You do your PhD and you're doing a lot of uh, stats and data and uh, testing and protocols and understanding the science and physiology, whereas at this level, like the, the base of it is more in the leadership and management realm. And, and a lot of people that are getting into director jobs may not have formalized training in leadership and management. And as a field, I don't know how uh, uh, focused we take those parameters, but the the first thing for those departments to be collaborative and uh, uh, cordial and, and um, work well together is having a good leadership and management structure. So for example, um, Jay's doing some work on this right now. Uh, Writing a paper kind of about leadership and management in sport, but like for leadership qualities, is you need someone to be able to establish direction, um, align your people. So, as a staff, I think we're, we're aligned in our perspective or our outcomes and, and what we want to get. Uh, and then also someone to motivate and inspire. That's different than the managing perspective of planning and budgeting, uh, controlling the situations, problem solving, and then uh, organizing and staffing. These are two different things, but they're very similar and closely oriented. And they're essential for. Uh, sporting organizations like this but they're often overlooked and we get these uh highly skilled technical people that lack the leadership and management qualities of working in a group where that piece i'm starting to see is is one of the most uh, important aspects at the, the base foundation. Um, so you establish good uh, relationships with your, with your coworkers. Everyone's on the same page. The, you build athletes trust because they see that you got you, both staffs are on the same page and they feel supported and cared about. Um, I think that stuff is it's just high level and essential uh, at this level.
0: Yeah, bro. I think that that even like trickles down to, to every level because it, it doesn't matter what type of, what the crew is like on the boat if you've got the wrong captain you can turn the ship into the titanic no matter what
1: man that's great completely so though that, that good direction is is essential and i think that uh is we talk about more of the details of the process i think that's overarching that help guide our ship uh to, to um do the best for the players
0: yeah man serve the that. players with us I love it. Well, hi, man, I'm so happy that we got you on the show today. I'm so glad we got the opportunity to catch up. I'm so still elated for you and and the season y'all had, and it's the coolest thing ever. It really is.
1: Thanks, at time. I appreciate that. Thanks for having me. Uh, appreciate the the support there. I just uh, feel super honored and and thankful to be a part of it. Incredible, incredible uh, organization and staff here. Um, as well as uh, players it's been a really good season
0: yeah man well listen before we get you out of here uh i know that you're not the biggest guy when it comes to the social media world but uh let's give everybody the the at so that they can give you a follow and make sure they know what's going on with dr heishman
1: yeah for sure my uh instagram is a 11 underscore and my twitter's the same thing so you can follow me on there reach out um I love talking shop and asking questions to people with with different perspectives. So feel free to reach out.
0: Doc, it's great to see you, man. It's great to catch up. I'm so freaking fired up for you and really grateful for your time today, man. This has been a great 30 minutes.
1: Thanks, man. Appreciate you.
0: Yeah, man. And as always thank you for everything y'all do for us here at central Virginia sport performance. We'll be back next week with another awesome guest. We'll see you then.